The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. It's incredibly obvious to everyone. It's in all our decorations. It's in all the music. It's in our schedule. It's the Christmas season. And every year it seems a little surprising to me as, as uh, the studies show fewer and fewer people uh, claim to be Christians anymore. We've all probably noticed trends of secularism in our society. It always just strikes me as ironic that we kind of hang on to this vague notion, right, um, in our time and place that Jesus has come. It's still there in the nativities, the decorations, the, the soundtracks. Jesus has come. And yet to most people, they see that as being rather irrelevant to their lives, don't they? It's just irrelevant. And yet, and yet the question still lingers. Who is he? Who's Jesus? Because let's be frank, if Jesus is just another good teacher, it's okay that he's irrelevant. It's okay, you can take advice as you needed it, but you're not desperate for him. If he's just a good teacher, it's okay, he's irrelevant, take him or leave him. But we're continuing through the Gospel of Mark and Mark, who would know, is claiming on every page that Jesus is infinitely more than just a good teacher. Mark has already told us Jesus is the Christ. That's a, a title of all titles. He's God's promised king. Jesus is the eternal son of God who's taken on flesh and come among us. And so Mark says, this changes everything. It changes everything, past, present, and future. And Mark, as we know, he was the close associate of the apostle Peter. He wrote this account of Jesus' life based on Peter's eyewitness testimony. He wrote this just 30 years after Jesus' life. Why do I mention that? You can't just write this off as legend or myth. It's too early. It won't work. So we have this profound claim in front of us regarding who Jesus is. Last week, Mark showed us some of the unparalleled authority of Jesus displaying him as the very son of God and God's promised king. If you missed that, I encourage you to get on the website, check that out. And one thing we saw about Jesus' authority, and, and we should see this, right? If he's truly God's promised king, we should, we should see something different in him. And we did. One thing we saw about Jesus' authority was his authority over just this broken creation, and the way that showed itself was, according to Mark, Jesus basically healed every single sick person in an entire city. They were all coming to him. He's healing, he's healing, he's healing. And of course, as the text tells us, his, his, pop, his popularity exploded. I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine? And he's not just a charlatan, but you can bring the sick that you know and love and care about, and he would actually, right there on the spot, completely heal them. Mind-blowing. It'd be incredible. But strangely, that, that passage ended like this. Look what Jesus said in Mark 1.38. Jesus said to them, let's go on to the next towns, that I may, what? Preach there also. And then what does he say? That is why I came. That in comparison to what? 
healing. According to Jesus, what did he, what did he come to do primarily? Teach or heal? Teach. Teach. More than healing, Jesus came to preach. He came to teach. That's kind of shocking to us, I think. Jesus prioritizes. He wants to reveal core truth. He wants you to see and know core truth. He's revealing the Father and what it means to be reconciled to God. He's revealing the nature of himself as the promised king and the fulfillment of all God's promises, the nature of his kingdom. Now, this is strange and challenging to us. Here, let me put it like this. What would be more amazing to you? Would you rather see a miracle of genuine physical healing or hear faithful sermons where God was actually talking to you? Would you rather see a miracle or hear a faithful sermon? I mean, instantly most of us would be like, miracle. Miracle. And let's be honest, right? Some miracles would really help. <laughs> and we've, we've prayed for some. We'd love to see some. They would be greatly appreciated. But just frankly, honestly, honestly, what happens after Jesus heals someone? I mean, they're completely healed, but what happens after he heals them? Give it 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. What happens? They get sick and they die. They get sick and they die. But to hear from God, to have God come near and speak to you, so that you could know him, relate to him, be transformed by him, belong to him. What is that worth? What is that worth to you? So Jesus emphasizing preaching over healing, it's not a lack of love on his part. It is an expression of his love, that his priority is the message. In fact, Part of what the miracles in, this, in these gospels serve to do is they vindicate his message, don't they? And he's, he's going to make incredible claims about himself, one with the Father, the eternal Son of God. And, and, and part of us, we should want to say, well, prove it. And, and Jesus says, well, how about I heal everyone in the city? Does that show you who I am? Doesn't it vindicate what I say? But Jesus is making it clear, he's not primarily a miracle worker. And that's what so many kind of charlatans in the church want to make him out to be, isn't it? Or, or we, you know, we want to give a sense that Jesus is just mainly here to make you comfortable. Look, does Jesus give a lot of comfort in our lives? Does he help us? Does he bless us? Oh, infinitely. But he's not primarily a healer, he's king, he's a preacher, he's a teacher. He's to be listened to, trusted, obeyed. So Jesus is emphasizing that here. But then right after he says that, what was our passage today? He, he says, I'm not here mainly to do miracles, I'm here to preach. And then what does he do in this text today? Another miracle. It's almost like he, he can't help it. And again, it's strange why would I say that? Well, we just had a pile of miracles thrown at us where everybody came and he healed them all, right? Mark said that, verses 32 to 33. He healed everybody in town. He just summed them all up. And don't you kind of want to hear a detailed description of each one? 
I wanna see it, I wanna watch each one. Tell me about each one. Well, he healed everybody in the town. But then Mark says, I'm gonna show you this one. I wanna show you this one. So already we should be like, why, why are you showing us this one? We should be curious, right? This one gets pointed out, it's different. A leper runs up to Jesus and says, if you will, you can make me, and then what did he say? Clean. That's interesting. What, what might you expect him to say? If you will, you can heal me. That's not what he says. If you will, you can make me clean. Then you realize, I mean, our story, how many verses? Six verses. You read this over. How many times did Mark use some variety of the word clean? Clean, 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 clean. Four times in six verses. So Mark is making it clear. He's talking about more than just physical healing, isn't he? He's talking about more than just physical healing. He's talking about a problem that goes much deeper than just something physical. And I'm pretty sure it refers to a problem we all have, and it's our worst problem. And this passage shows us how Jesus is the only king who both wants to and has authority to heal it. So here's what we're going to look at today. To stay on track, I got three points. Number one, the parallel. Number two, the posture. Number three, the power. The parallel, the posture, the power. The parallel. Well, verse 40, a leper comes to Jesus, imploring him, kneeling, says to him, if you will, you can make me clean. We got to unpack leprosy a little bit. There was a certain form of leprosy that was the worst nightmare of the ancient world. Uh, it's one of the oldest infectious diseases known to man. One source I read called it the scourge of humanity since antiquity. It's known as the living death. Sounds pleasant, huh? The disease damaged the nervous system underneath and on the skin with many horrible effects. Number one, it would often numb the skin. So you don't have the warning system of feeling. So what are you doing if you can't feel anything? Well, you're always overdoing it. You can't respond to the, I mean, if you touch something hot, your nerves tell you, ah, pull back. If you don't feel that, and so you're unintentionally and continually injuring yourself and you're unaware of it and all that's leading to infections. Moreover, you get these horrible patches of skin that would become thick and scaly. You get these open sores on your head. Sometimes it would just be constantly discharging. It could lead to paralysis of parts of the face. It would mess with your vocal cords. You'd have this disintegrating kind of scratchy voice. It could compromise your internal organs, and it would all just increase over time. Sometimes you would have these uh, knobs and your, your, your fingers and your toes would actually kind of disintegrate. I mean, it's just wretched. Slowly but surely, you are rotting away, and you look the part. You don't want to get leprosy. Moreover, it's contagious. It's contagious. So the health issues are bad enough, but it's what it does relationally that makes it truly horrid. So what do you have to do in the ancient world? You've got leprosy. What do you have to do? You have to say goodbye. You have to say goodbye to your loved ones because you don't want your family getting this. This was a verse from Leviticus. Here's Leviticus 13. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear wear torn clothes, so he's always dressed like a mourner. 
Let the hair of his head hang loose. He shall cover his upper lip. They knew partly how it was uh, contagious. And he would cry out, unclean, unclean. Why has he got to cry out, unclean? So, so you know he's coming. Is this primarily to be mean to the leper? No, it's to be nice to everybody else. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He's unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Say goodbye to your relationships. Say goodbye to corporate worship. You can't be part of the worshiping community. And you're considered unclean. Do you hear the echo from that Leviticus passage into this Mark passage? So now we have to take in a tricky but an important idea, okay? You have to get your... You have to get your Bible nerd hat on. We're going to take on a tricky but an important idea. Have you noticed you've tried to read the Bible? You're doing all right. You get into Leviticus. You, you stumble a little bit. Uh, and you have a lot of passages on what it means to be clean or unclean. Have you ever wondered, what is this about? Well, today's your lucky day. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Certain foods, lifestyle practices, activities could be clean or unclean. What do we mean? To be clean basically meant you're fit to come enjoy the worship of God with one another. You're, you're welcome. Come on in. To be unclean means you can't, you can't come in like that. You can't come in like that. So how do we illustrate this? I don't know. Here's my try. If you stayed unclean intentionally, it would be like going to a formal dinner on a glorious occasion with vomit on your shirt and dog poop on your shoes. Okay? And it's a little bit comical, but if somebody did that, how would you respond? You know, it would be, you'd be repulsed. That's the sense of what it means to be unclean. It's not fitting. It doesn't belong here. Uh, there's something appalling about it. So we, so we have to be very careful. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to nuance this. It is not always a sin to be unclean, ceremonially unclean in the Old Testament. It's not always a sin. Here's an example. Uh, there's, there's a lot about daily life that could make you unclean that's not explicitly disobedience. One example, burying a dead body. Okay, somebody has to do it, right? You carry the body, you go bury it. That's a loving act. Somebody has to do it. It's not a sin. It would make you ceremonially unclean. Why? Why? Well, ceremonial uncleanness often has to do with contacting an effect of sin in the world. I'll say that again. Ceremonially, uh, ceremonial uncleanness often has to do with a contact with an effect of sin in the world. So for instance, why do we die? I mean, Christians have a different view on this than everybody else. It's not just the natural process. It is right now the natural process. It's not just the natural process. Why do we die? The wages of sin is death. That's why all of us are under, we sang about it, under the curse in a way. Now, if I died tonight, is it because I did some horrible sin today? No. And, and well, it was one of those kinds of sins. 
But no, not really, but it's just, it's more of this broad connection, right? Death is an echo of our sin, right? It's a, it's a picture of being in a corrupted, fallen world. And God, what is God like? He's life, he's perfect, he's, he's sufficient, he's eternal. There's no death in him. So if death is a picture of our brokenness, our corruption, con- connection with death would make you ceremonially unclean. But does that mean God's done with you or there's nothing you can do about it, it's over for you? No, not at all. There was, the law had an answer, right? God made a way for you to be ceremonially clean again. All these processes, you could go through some washing, you could be clean, you come worship again. Why is this in the Bible? It's a fair question. Why on earth did you get all the space of this in the Bible? I'll give you three main reasons. Number one, in the Old Testament law, these law about cleanness, they were often about practical, hygienic concern for the community. Just makes sense, right? With the, the leprosy, for instance. This is concern for the community. It's, it's hygiene. So these protected the community from health issues, all right? But there's also, we have to admit, and much of the Old Testament is like this, there's symbolic lessons regarding God's holiness and our sin, Symbolic lessons. So for instance, it was almost impossible for anyone to stay ceremonially clean for very long. You can't do it. What is that teaching you? It's it's meant to teach you some of how deep the sin problem goes in every single aspect of your existence. It's meant to teach you that. Every aspect of existence. But of course, it's not just hygienic concern teaching you about how deep the sin problem goes. It also shows you God can make a way for you to be clean, can renew you, can create you, can bring you into his presence. All right, so if you're, if you're forgetting where we're at, why am I saying all this? Well, the first point is the parallel. It's the parallel. The leper comes to Jesus and says, if you will, you can make me Clean, and Mark mentions clean, clean, clean four times. Are we supposed to sit here and just go, wow, what a curiosity. What an, what a, what an amazing example from history. That's interesting that Jesus did that. But it has nothing to do with me. Is that, what, is that what Mark is intending to do with us right now? No. Here's the parallel. The hopeless uncleanness of leprosy is a parable for what? It's a parable for your sinful condition. That's what it is. And the Bible makes this parallel all the time. One example, cleanness, uncleanness, sin. Isaiah 64, 6, look at this. We have all become like one who is what? Unclean. Our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. It's a grieving over the reality of what we've done. And and do you see just kind of this irony? What is it that's like a polluted garment in this verse, verse 6? It's our righteous deeds that are a polluted garment. Is it fair to say that apart from Jesus Christ, apart from knowing him, even the best things you ever did were tainted with sin? Have you ever done something kind of ethnic, ethically moral, a little bit heroic, and then you looked at yourself and went, dang, look at me. Okay? And that's because you did it once. 
And then instantly you wanted recognition from others for it. Can't you admit that sometimes even your best deeds, the motive of it, the motive of it is pride? And you celebrate yourself for a good deed? And then this, this phrase, polluted garment, I won't go into details, but it means it's filthy. It's filthy. How many of you, every once in a while, you wake up early in the morning, or when you're by yourself for very long, a sense of shame hits you? A sense of regret hits you. And you see it for a flash, you feel it for a moment. On beautiful things you defiled, on important things you messed up. On, and you feel it for a moment, and you almost can't bear it. And wouldn't you say sometimes, you feel dirty? You feel like it's, you're tainted. You, really, you know how many Psalms have this language? Wash me, God. That's what it's like to be in a sinful world. That's what it's like to commit sin. Jesus speaks like this in Mark 7. Look what he says. I mean, he's really going to elbow us. He's talking about what makes people clean or unclean. And the Pharisees of his day are like, well, you got to wash your hands in the right angle. Okay, before you eat, you got to wash them with the water. And you have to hold your hand like this because you want the water to fall off. Because as soon as the water hits your fingers, it, it, the water's now unclean. And it's got to come off this way. Because if you do it this way, the water's unclean. And then it hits your fingers and you're still unclean. And that, that would make you unclean. And then, I'm not kidding. And the Pharisees come to, say, to Jesus and are like, how come you and your disciples don't wash your hands like this? And Jesus says, that has really nothing to do with how clean or unclean you are. And then Jesus drops this on us. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. That word defile, it's unclean. It's dirty, don't belong, broken, corrupted. This is terrible. Look at verse 21. For from, for from where? Within. Okay, if, if, if we had started from scratch and we invite everybody in here and said, what's the biggest problem with our nation today? What's the biggest problem in your life today? How many of you would have been foolish enough to not put my heart? Do you see what Jesus just said? What's your biggest problem? For from within, out of the heart of man, Come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things, where do they come from? From within. And they defile a person. We won't take the time to go into all those aspects of all that, all that unclean behavior, but just see something. It comes from within. It's right here, a source of uncleanness. When Jesus speaks of the heart, your heart represents your core self, your fundamental desires, what you love, what you live for. And then Jesus says, your biggest problem is you. Sin is not like it's something stinky you stepped in by accident, right? Oops, you know, I'm not perfect, but I'm generally good. Sin is something you love from the very core of yourself, Left to yourself, the core of your heart is unclean. Do you see the parallel here? 
See the parallel? Worse than, re- worse than leprosy, sin goes deep and affects the whole person. Worse than leprosy, sin is ugly and corrupts our lives. Worse than leprosy, sin spreads and contaminates. Worse than leprosy, sin brings a loss of feeling. You're insensitive, unresponsive to God. Worse than leprosy, sin separates you from God and others. Worse than leprosy, sin is uncurable. You cannot save yourself from yourself. You cannot save yourself from God's wrath that you deserve for loving sin. That's the parallel. It's heavy, isn't it? It's heavy. Now the posture, second point, the posture. Verse 40, a leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. First thing to see, what does the leper know about himself? Very plainly, very obviously, I am unclean. He feels it or doesn't feel it. He sees it. He smells it. I am unclean. You know, in Luke's story, if you imagine the setting, right, this guy ambles up to Jesus. In Luke's account of the story, Luke says the man was full of leprosy. So if you were there and this guy waddled up, number one, you'd be backing away. And number two, you might want to hide your eyes because the whole thing has been pounding on him for years and he looks like it. It would be one of the most heartbreaking things you'd ever seen. But he has one advantage over you, as much as you're kind of disgusted by what you see. He has one advantage over you, because you know what he knows very simply, very easily, very obviously? He knows he's unclean. It's harder for us, isn't it? That parallel, it's harder for us. It's very hard for us to be honest with ourselves about the reality of just how sinful we are. Maybe some of the depth of our sin is exposed by just how hard we try to hide it. True or false, we avoid honest contemplation of the reality of our own motives, thoughts, and deeds. True or false, we're quick to criticize others harshly and feel self-righteous about it and use a very different standard for ourselves. True or false, we create false standards of morality in order to vindicate our goodness. Right, if I ask you, are you a good person? What What do you naturally compare yourself to? Someone worse than you than you've thought and heard of. Why did you pick that as the standard? Does that make any sense? Does that make any sense that the standard of justice would be someone worse than you? Why do we do that? We all do it. It's like it comes naturally. We're born with it. Why would we do that? That's so ridiculous. It's illogical. Why do we do it? We're doing it because we're so sinful, but we're hiding it. We don't want to see it. We create false standards of morality in order to vindicate our own goodness while basically ignoring God's standard. And that's basically telling God he's not God and we've taken over, right? Who gets to set the standard of morality? God. Not only that, we don't take serious the reality of God's goodness. Isn't it true that, and if you think, man, you're being hard on me today. I think I'm being honest with you today and with myself today. Isn't it true? I mean, you are some of the nicest people I know, and I mean that in all genuineness. 
But isn't it true that even the best of us, we sort of love what is good? Don't you sort of love what is good a lot of the time? What is God like? He always fully, completely, passionately loves what is good. And then then back to us, isn't it true we sort of hate what's evil sometimes? But aren't you still a little bit drawn to some forms of evil? They're entertaining to you. You'll, You'll hope you'll catch a glimpse of it. Don't you still enjoy a little bit of like passive aggressive revenge? We like evil. Sometimes the most loving thing God can ever do for you is the one thing you don't really want him to do. And that is to show you the reality of you so that your heart will despair for a moment and say, I'm unclean. I'm unclean. And for some of you, this will set you free. Here's what I mean. If you have a sense of guilt and shame over huge and horrible things in the past, and it's always dogging you, it's always following you, the first step to being healed from it is admitting it's real. I messed it up. And I have no excuse. What do I do now? Well, here's the good news. Be like the leper. And what does he do? He comes to Jesus. He comes to Jesus. Nothing is going to make you run to Jesus like when you realize you're unclean in your sin. And you need him and you see him and hear the lepers breaking all the rules. You're not supposed to come to people. But I don't blame the leper for this one, do you? He's heard of what Jesus can do. He's tired of being full of leprosy. What does he have to lose? Not much. I'm coming to Jesus. He comes. Did you know you're all invited? Did you know you're all invited to come to Jesus? There's only one person that can keep you from Jesus. You know who it is? It's you thinking you don't need him. Come to Jesus. He comes. Look, he comes humbly. He kneeled. This, this word kneeling, it's a, use, a word used in other places for worship. He's not entitled. He comes humbly before Jesus. He comes reverently. And look, he has enormous faith. What does he say to Jesus? If you will, you can make me clean. You can make me clean. He doesn't just say you could heal me. He says you could cleanse me all the way down. You could heal me, and he could, look, he's not demanding it, is he? He's not saying, Jesus, you owe me. He's not being entitled. He's saying, if you wanted to, you could. And he comes desperately, the text, this word imploring. He kept asking. He kept asking. Isn't this a picture? Friends, this is a picture of how we are to come to Jesus. If God is so kind to you as to show you the reality of your need for Jesus, come to Jesus by faith and come humbly, come reverently, come desperately, come saying, Jesus, you could make me clean. I don't deserve it, but you could make me clean. This should be our posture. And when this is our posture, look now at the posture of Christ. Verse 41. What are the first three words of verse 41? Moved with P. 
pity. What would you expect Jesus' heart towards you to be when you realize he sees how unclean you are in your sin? You'd expect him to despise you, right? Or to reject you, or to be sick of you, or to be like really still, to to push you away. That is not his heart. You want to learn one Greek word, it's worth it every once in a while. Splanknitsomai. You want to give it a shot? Splanknitsomai. Go ahead, one time, try it. Splanknitsomai. That's way better than pity. Splanknitsomai. It sounds like what it is. The Greek word is like, it's your guts. And and the idea is your guts just ache with compassion for somebody else. Have you ever felt like deep compassion before where you just could not believe somebody was in this situation and you're like, I would do, oh, I hurt for that person. I just want to help. What could I do? Your guts are just, oh, I want to help. I want to come close. What can I do? That is Jesus' heart for those who come to him with their need. Full of compassion. You know, in Matthew 11, Jesus says this defines his heart. He's compassionate. Splanknitsomai. And now Jesus breaks all the rules. Everybody there would have gasped when this happened. Because did you see what Jesus did? He says, if you will, you could make me clean. And, and what did Jesus do? Moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. You don't touch lepers. What a picture. This was something that this this is something that make onlookers gasp and the leper cry. When was the last time this man was touched with any compassion or love or welcome? And Jesus, that man, touches him. What a picture of genuine love, care, acceptance, connection. This picture of Christ, he comes right into our decrepit, rotting mess. He steps right into the room with us. We're unclean. We call out in our need for him, and he's full of compassion, and he draws near. When you come to Jesus because you need him, this is his response. This is his posture towards you. Don't ever forget it. This is his posture towards you. When you feel that guilt, that regret, that brokenness, that dirtiness, you say, Jesus, if you will, you can make me clean. And he says, I will. What does that mean when he says that? I will. It means I want to. Jesus likes to make those who are dirty on their own clean. He likes to make those who are guilty on their own innocent. He likes to make those who are broken on their own healed and transformed. He loves it. I will make you clean. The parallel, the posture, now the power. So in the law, if you touch a leper, he's unclean. What happens to you? You're unclean. And not only that, the leprosy may overcome you. It may get you. 
Jesus touches the leper. After that, is he like, does anybody have any hand sanitizer? <laughs> does he go through the, let's, the motions to become ceremonial clean? No, he doesn't sweat it in the least. How can Jesus break this rule? It's because of who he is. He's the holy one. He's the pure one. He's the son of God. We touch the leper, we become unclean. The leprosy overcomes us. He touches the leper. The leper becomes clean. He overcomes the leprosy. Jesus' purity is more powerful than our disease. And Mark says it happens immediately. Immediately he was clean. So I'm pretty sure this is what you're supposed to imagine. This guy waddles up. He's missing stuff. He looks like he looks. It's not good. Jesus touches him, says, I will be clean. And you would see total regeneration of his body. And everybody would, everybody saw it would just, you'd be out of your mind. You would be out of your mind. And, and one reason I think this is a complete and total healing is because Jesus says, you need to go present yourself to the priest. That's a 60-mile walk. That's tough if you don't have toes. But Jesus is like, you can, you can do this now. And the, I'm feeling up to it. <laughs> Jesus has healed him immediately. What power. But look, now we take an interlude, okay? What, this cannot be invented by human beings. Because so many times you read this text, and you're like, what is going on? Why is this happening? Look at verse 43. It doesn't seem to fit. It does. Hopefully I'll show you, but look, it doesn't seem to fit. Verse 43, Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once. So Jesus was feeling deep compassion. And in the blink of an eye, the word means indignant. He's a little bit, he's on it. He's angry. He's angry. Why? Why is he, why is he upset? That's what you got to ask. Different commentators or preachers, you hear different theories. I, let's find our evidence from the text, okay? Let's find our evidence from the story. Why is he angry? Well, we just saw it. We saw it last week. It's a text right before ours now. After spending hours in prayer, Jesus is leaving a city where he healed everyone. What does he want to do first? We looked at this in the beginning. He wants to preach. He wants to preach. He's not here fundamentally to be a healer. Okay, if this guy starts telling everyone that his full-on leprosy was instantly cleansed by Jesus touching him, what will happen? Everywhere will go nuts. It'll be a tide wave of popularity. It'll hamper Jesus' ability to teach freely in the surrounding cities. That's why he's got an edge on him right here. That's why he says, don't tell. Because he's already, he's told you his priority. I want to go teach. And if you tell everybody, everybody sees me as a healer. It's like a chaotic circus and I can't teach the way I want to teach. I can't preach the way I want to preach. And so, I mean, you realize cleansing a leper is unheard of. In the entire Bible, I think this is right. There's only four accounts of lepers being cleansed. Two in the Old Testament two accounts in the New Testament. One rabbi at the time said cleansing a leper was as impossible as raising the dead. If lepers can be cleansed by Jesus touching them. So here's what Jesus says, do this instead. Jesus certainly charged him, sent, sent him away at once. Did you catch that? At once, go. I was just transformed. Leave now. Don't talk. 
and leave now. Now, you would think those would be simple commands. Don't talk and leave now. And Jesus says, go do this instead. Go show yourself to the priest as a proof for them. Why? Well, number one, this would keep the Levitical law, right? If you get cleansed, you go through the process and the priest tests you and you, and you do the ceremony. And then you're, you're validated by the whole community, by the authorities of the community. You're full on back in, restored. You're clean, beautiful. But there's something else too. Because if the priests who haven't seen a real leper cleansed ever have a testimony of this guy, being totally transformed instantly. How did that happen to you? Jesus touched me. Then what do the chief priests of Israel know? The Messiah is here and you should bow your knee in worship. He's the king. And you have incontrovertible proof on who Jesus is they would know. So Jesus says, leave now, be quiet. You'll go be a sermon to the religious leaders. Well, what does this guy do? Did you see it? He immediately starts telling everyone. And the word here that's used for what he says is preaching. He went around right there, screaming it out from the housetops, what Jesus did for him. And can't you kind of can't you feel for him a little bit? Can you understand why he would want to do this? You would be a little excited. You would want to share it. And yet as much as we can relate, in this case, it's not a good thing. Why is it not a good thing that he's preaching what Jesus did for him? Number one, you're disobeying. Sometimes you can melt it down to that, can't you? What does Jesus say? What's his love language? If you love me, Keep my commands. That's how I'll know. Even if you don't understand them all, obey me. That's how I'll know. He's disobeying. But secondly, here's why his preaching is such bad news. His preaching hampers Jesus' preaching. Did you see what happened? Look at the end of the text. The man went out and began to talk freely about it. It's verse 45. And to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town. It's like, hey, bro, it's great that you're preaching. We're really excited for you and your zeal. But the towns need to hear Jesus preach, not you. There's probably some lessons here for our own preaching, but we don't have time for that right now. But there's something Mark is showing us here about the power of how Jesus cleanses us. So far, we've done the parallel, right? Leprosy is a parallel of our sinful condition. We've done the posture. We ought to come with humble, reverent desperation to Jesus to make us clean. And as we do that, his posture towards us is compassionate. And now the power Jesus touches the lepers cleanse, but look, we see something about how the power of Jesus actually gets it done. Before the miracle, who's in the town's preaching? Jesus. And who is outcast to the desolate places? The leper. Now, after the miracle, 
After the touch, who's in the town's preaching? The leper. And who is the outcast to the desolate places? Jesus. They've traded places. They've traded places. In the touch, they've traded places. Tell me this is not an illustration or a parable for how Jesus makes you clean. This is in the prophets. Look at Isaiah 53. Remember the book of Isaiah taught us about our uncleanness. Look at what Isaiah 53 says, a prophecy of Christ hundreds of years before. Surely he has borne, what has he borne? Our griefs, he's carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. Verse five, he was pierced, why? For our transgressions. He was crushed, why? For our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned each one to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He makes us clean through substitution. He takes our place. This is what he said in Mark 10. Look at Mark 10, 45. The son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I deserve God's wrath for my rebellion and sin. Jesus says, my life for yours. He takes my place. He buys me with the, at the price of his blood. The apostle Paul makes this real clear in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Look at this. This is how he makes us clean. He takes our place. For our sake, God made him. Who's the him? Jesus. And what did God make Jesus to be? To be sin. Who knew no sin. So here's Jesus, the one man who's clean. The one man who's never sinned. And what is he made to be on the cross? Unclean. He was treated like all your deepest and darkest deserve for you in your place on the cross. He makes the trade so that in him we might become, what do we get? We become the righteousness of God. How can, how can I, the unclean one, the rebellious one, the corrupted one, be counted righteous with God's righteousness? Jesus comes and he takes my place and he makes me clean. His life for mine, his death for mine, his resurrection for me. And just like Jesus cleaned the leper in Mark, what was the word? Immediately. When you put your faith in Christ, what happens to you? Immediately. Immediately. You're united to the Son of God, and immediately you are completely forgiven. You are united with the Son of God, and immediately you are perfectly righteous in the righteousness of someone else. Immediately. Immediately, you are fully adopted as a child of God. 
you've been cleansed because he took your place. Who is Jesus? Is he just a good teacher? Got some advice for you? Jesus is the Christ, the, the Son of God, and he's your only hope of being cleansed. Why did he come? Well, he came to preach the truth, and the truth is that he came to cleanse you of your sin by taking your place through his life, his cross, his resurrection. How should you respond? How do you respond to this Jesus? Come, see the reality of your need, and seriously come, and keep coming humbly, reverently, desperately. We'll close with this. Look at 1 John 1.8. Can we read it together? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would take this time that we had and show us as we need to see it, our need for you and the the dirtiness of our actual sin and rebellion against you. Lord, help us to, to hate it. But more than that, help us to, to see you, the Lord Jesus, full of compassion, drawn to us in our need, and let us come to you in faith and trust you, Lord. If you will, we can be clean. As we put our faith in you, the compassionate one, so full of love, the one who took our place, let us know that through faith in you, we are washed clean. We are forgiven. We are made righteous now and forever. We belong to you. Let us live in the light of that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.